0: You're listening to Radiotopia Presents from PRX's Radiotopia. Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen
1: My name is Al Edson, and I do a lot of things, but all my life, people have told me not
2: to. Let me get this straight. You're going to be a poet, an actor, a playwright, a radio host, a storyteller, a comic book writer.
1: Man, you, you, you can't do everything, Al. But I want to do everything. And that's what this podcast is about earth thing i want to do stories radio drama documentary pieces and interviews with some of the most interesting people on the planet i told you we're gonna do earth thing and sometimes i'll have my trusty dj with me willie evans jr I, i'm not a dj or whatever you make beats he's the dj i'm the rapper
2: no you're not and no i'm not
1: you never know because we're gonna be doing
2: earth thing you like Eddie Murphy now. You trying to pick every character in the movie. You can't do that, Al. You can't do that. You just got to pick one. I need to know what you do. I need to know what you do, what you do, what you do, what you do. What you
1: do. I'm Al Letson, and this is a little different Earth thing. Willie's off today, but he'll be back next week, I promise. Um, you know, when we were thinking about this episode, we thought we needed a little bit of a different approach to how we do things because the subject is different. So, uh, back in 2014, I started working on this book. The tentative title was The Thinking Man's Guide to Rape Culture. It was gonna be my exploration into learning what rape culture was, and I was gonna do that by interviewing women of all different backgrounds to get their take on it, and then using those interviews to reflect on some stories from my life. I worked on this book for about three years. I interviewed over 20 women. Uh, I started meeting with agents and everything, and then the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke, and the Me Too movement started. And I thought, you know, In this moment, it is time for men to shut up and listen. Like we shouldn't be centering our experiences, we should be listening. So I stopped working on it, but continued to listen to the women in my life and women that I didn't know and hearing their experiences with it. There's a story from that book that won't let me go and this is the place where Willie and I tell stories. So I thought, I don't know, maybe this is where I would tell that story. Slight warning here, if you're listening with children, this might be an episode you want to listen to without them around. And with that said, I give you the good guy myth.
3: Hi, I'm glad you're here because it's story time. time. Hi, I'm glad you're here because it's story 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 time. Hi, I'm glad you're here because it's story time. Story time. Story time.
1: One, I reminisce so you never forget this, the days of way back, so many bear witness the fitness, take the first letter out of each word in this joint, listen close as I prove my point, see how smooth. On my 18th birthday, Lewis invited me to his house. When I got there, he handed me a beer and walked me back into his bedroom, where a bone-skinny woman was laying on a bed trying desperately to look sexy. Hi, I'm Candy, she said, as she batted her eyes like a character out of some bad porn parody. She looked slightly dazed, makeup caked on her face. Lewis put his hand on my shoulder and laughed at my ear. Look what I got you for your birthday, nigga. Who take care of you? Who got your back? (laughs) Ha! He pushed me into the room and closed the door. I didn't know what to do, I mean, my birthday present from Lewis was a woman who he handed off like a power tool. I didn't think about what that meant. All I knew is that there was a woman in front of me who was there to be used for sex. At 18, every time I was intimate with someone, I thought it would be my last. Like, who is going to let me do this again? So, when it was offered, no wasn't something I'd ever said before, but this... This felt different. I didn't have the language or the emotional maturity to name the strange feeling spreading in my chest. Something wasn't right. The closer I got to Candy, I realized she wasn't skinny. She was emaciated, like, like she hadn't been eating or, or she was on drugs or both. I have flashes in my memory of her cocoa-complexioned hand reaching for my belt buckle, me stopping her from undoing it, us sitting on the bed next to each other, and her trying to unbutton my shirt, me politely holding her hand and pulling it away, her lips, fluorescent red and full, pressing against my neck, leaving a trace of her lipstick. I stood up uncomfortable, unsure of what to do. The whole thing made me sad. When it was apparent to her that we weren't gonna have sex, she told me Lewis said he wouldn't give her a ride home. She at least had to give me a blowjob. I told her no, and that I would just give her a ride home. I walked out the room with Candy following behind me. Lewis was on the couch with a woman. I think her and Candy were somehow connected, but not connected enough that she cared that Candy was leaving with a stranger. Lewis smiled at me when I told him I was taking Candy home. Maybe he thought I went through with it. Maybe he didn't care. Either way, he jumped off the couch and wrapped me in a bear hug. I'd known Lewis since I was 14. He was my big brother's best friend. My brother and I had a challenging relationship in my teens. But whenever Lewis was around, he'd always have my back. A word of encouragement, a couple dollars if I needed it, these big hugs that didn't care about the machismo of youth. He was my second brother, and I loved him the way a younger brother loves the elder, with a mixture of loyalty, admiration, envy, and trust. Normally his bear hugs were welcome and full, but that night, that night it felt empty. I pulled back and told him I'd catch him later and left to drive Candy home. My rust-colored Ford Granada ate the road like a tank rolling into battle. The night had settled around us. For me, driving Candy home felt like a chore, but for her, it looked like she was on a joyride. Every time I looked at her, her face was a distorted smile. The streetlight on the highway lit the passenger side of the car like a strobe light, making Candy's laughter and movement feel jerky, a scene in slow motion. She said things like she was finally getting her life together, slapping the back of her left hand into her right palm. She rocked a little, all the while smiling, me saying, you nice, you real nice. I dropped her off on a darkened street, asked her if she lived there, she said somewhere. She walked over to the driver's side, put her hand on mine and said, you nice. When I see you again, I'm going to be straight, you'll see. But I never saw Candy again. i I'm wrestling with words and ideas. My ears is pricked, seeking what will transmit the scribes can apply to transcript. This ain't no time where the usual is suitable. Yassine Bay. Fifteen years later, Lewis and I had grown apart. My brother had cut him off, said he couldn't deal with Lewis's bitch acidness, and I'd grown up got married, and had four kids. In those days, I didn't have much time for anything, let alone palling around with a perpetually childlike friend from my teen years. But here was Lewis showing up at my door, asking to get a beer. He moved a couple states away, and I didn't get to see him much these days. So when he popped up, I said, sure. Seeing him at my door made me uneasy. And I, I didn't know why. I mean, he was my friend, and he'd always been good to me, but I really didn't want him to come in because, you know, my wife and daughter were there. So instead, after a brief hello to my family, I redirected him and we went to a steakhouse and sat at a bar and caught up. He told me about all the women he was sleeping with in the little southern town he moved to, how he was making so much money and life was good. We laughed about old times, drunk to my success. He flirted relentlessly with the bartender. That old feeling of unease came back every time the bartender came to check on us. I still remember that feeling from all those years ago. Sharp edges of embarrassment, both in the moment and in the present. Then I was embarrassed because Lewis was so overt with his flirting, it was irritating and bothering me. Not because I was worried about how the woman felt, but because my best friend was a manager of the restaurant and I didn't want him to get pissed. After an hour of talking and his aggressive flirting, I was ready to go. But before I could leave, Lewis looked at me seriously and said, I'm getting married in a couple months, and, uh, you know, man, I want you to be my best man. Now, put aside the fact that he had just told me about all the extracurricular sex he was having and hadn't mentioned his fiance once. There were a million and one reasons I didn't want to be his best man. Namely, he wasn't my best friend or even in the ballpark. But also, I didn't want to be around him for a full day. I didn't want to do what best men need to do. I was busy. I had a career, family, projects, a whole life that felt like it would be interrupted to stand up for someone I wasn't especially close to. But... There is something about shared history. It's, it's the gravitational pull that keeps you floating in an orbit. He looked at me, eyes filled with excitement, and all I could say was, of course. On the day of the wedding, Louis and I stood at the front of the church. My rented tuxedo didn't fit me right. The back collar itched me to distraction. But in all the reflective surfaces peppered throughout the sanctuary, Whenever I caught a glimpse of us, I thought, you know, we look good. The old church was small. The light was pouring in through stained glass windows. The pews were only partly filled. Louis's family had come down from New York. They sat grouped together towards the front. His fiance's friends and family were mostly local. They walked in with big smiles. The younger men wore sneakers. The older men had canes. The younger women wore tight dresses. The older women had big hats. Upon entering the church, her people waved to one another from the door, then proceeded to sit as far away from each other as they could. I said stuff to Lewis that seemed like the right thing to say. You okay? You sure you want to do this, huh? You good? It felt hollow coming out of my lips, like like I was giving a cold reading from a new script. If Lewis could sense the falseness in my voice, he didn't let on. He just chuckled and responded, You know it. You know it. The pastor was directly behind us, thumbing through his Bible when Lewis said, God damn! You see that? My head snapped up as a woman walked into the sanctuary. The light from outside was framing her figure and she looked good. I mean, if I had been on the street, I might have said the same thing to Lewis, but we were in a church standing at an altar for his wedding. Yo, I'ma get with that. Let me catch her at the reception and boy, it on like Donkey Kong. Seriously, he said that. It was so bad. I remember it word for word. I glanced at the preacher, hoping he didn't hear what Lewis just said. If he did, he showed no indication. Yo, 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 chill, I said. He lowered his voice and spoke through gritted teeth while smiling. But did you see that? Dog, you are getting married. The fun don't stop. It's just another type of party music. Here comes the bride begins and his wife-to-be stood in the same doorway as the woman who just walked in. The sun lit the white of her wedding dress perfectly and she glowed in the light. She was absolutely stunning. For a brief moment I felt something that everyone feels at a wedding. Joy and a hope for something better. I looked over to see what Lewis was thinking and his eyes was stuck on the woman who walked in before his bride. One year later, Lewis's mother, Laura is on the phone telling me that Lewis had been arrested, and the charges were serious. She told me his whole family was coming down from New York to be here for him as he faced this ordeal, and they weren't there yet, and could I come over and sit with her for a bit? Of course, I said. I left my office in a hurry, thinking about the accusations that were leveled against him, feeling a heaviness in my chest. I didn't want to go to his mother's house, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. Louis was in trouble, and if it had been me, I know he would have come. Laura always made me uncomfortable. She was sweet and treated me well, but something fell off. She insisted that I call her mom. While my brother did, the word always stuck in my mouth, like like a loose hair in the back of my throat. Calling her mom felt like a small betrayal to my mom. And Laura was the bizarro version of her, a twisted funhouse mirror where everything was the exact opposite. She didn't go to church, she told dirty jokes, and would smoke weed with my brother and Lewis in their teen years. She was a good time whose payment never felt due. Knowing all of that, I went. And when she wrapped her slender brown arms around me, I could feel the anxiety rolling off her. Black mothers have a seed of fear embedded in their hearts at the moment of their child's conception. That seed grows into a small patch of thorny vines that can take residence in their gut. Every day, sometimes at the slightest provocation, police sirens, car backfires, a raised voice, and those vines can crawl up the throat and choke the oxygen out of the lungs. There are many ways to deal with this invasive weed as there are mothers. Laura learned to tend this briar patch of fear by befriending Lewis, being his best friend, a confidant, believing that in their closeness, she could protect him. And yet still, he sits in a jail cell. Tonight, her fear multiplied like kudzu vines, threatening to overrun anything in their vicinity. It was in the desperate way she hugged me, a sad smile carefully situated on her face to stop the tears from falling, the way she told me about Lewis's arrest, hands trembling slightly. Lewis had been charged with knowingly infecting his wife with HIV. His mother told me his side of the story, that he had told her before they were married. She found out he was cheating and wanted to get revenge. I didn't know what to say. The weight of it made me rock back in my chair. The rest of the night was a blur. Laura talked, I listened, numb, not quite knowing how to take it all in. I left a few hours later. The numbness began to wear off, replace by that old, uneasy feeling bubbling in my gut. I pushed that feeling down as far as I could because I had to. I couldn't deal with my feelings and still be there for Lewis. I don't remember how this happened, whether he got out on bail or if someone called me with him on the other line, but a couple days after talking to his mom, I was on the phone talking to Lewis. He made everything sound like it wasn't a big deal with his words, but under the surface, the bravado I'd known so well was gone. In its place was a scared little boy. I told him I'd stick with him, that we were brothers and nothing could change that. He told me he was innocent, that she lied about the whole thing. I told him I believed him and I did, but that uneasy feeling would not be denied. It kept floating like a satellite caught in the gravity of our shared past. Lewis was HIV positive, And deep down... I'd known it. In the quiet years, the penumbra between my early 20s and mid-30s was only interrupted by a singular visit. He came to my house unannounced, looking so small, I didn't recognize him at first. Lewis was never a big man, but he was bigger than me. But now he was small, not just from weight loss, but his body seemed to stoop over like the weight of the sky was pushing him to the ground. He could see his reflection in my eyes and tried hard to be his old self, but it was clear to me that it was all just an act. He told me that diabetes caused his weight loss, but he was getting healthy and he'd be fine. I didn't believe him. I knew how reckless he was in his sex life, and I assumed the worst. And it broke my heart. Before he left, I wrapped my arms around him and kissed him on the cheek and told him I loved him. In return, he hugged me tight. That big bear hug that he used to give me as a kid and walked away without a word. So when he popped up my place, asked me to be his best man, I knew. I made excuses, like maybe it was diabetes, but deep down, I knew. And I knew what he was telling me about his wife didn't make any sense. Over the next few months, I pushed Lewis and his arrest away. At some point, his mother told me he would be serving four years, and if I gave her my landline number, he could call me collect. I told her I didn't have a landline. I did. She asked me to write him. I told her I would. And I didn't. And then one day, a letter from Lewis came. I put it in the drawer and didn't think about it for a month. The night I finally decided to read the letter, I googled Lewis's case just to see what had been reported. The news stories and gossip on the comment boards was overwhelming. There were unconfirmed reports he'd infected over 20 people. The collateral of his recklessness had torn lives apart. I looked at that unopened letter and threw it away. Three, I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same. Abusing my power full of resentment. Resentment that turned into a deep depression. Kendrick Lamar. I want to make it clear. I'm not advocating for criminalizing a disease. His HIV status is not the point of this story. His predatory behavior is. It may be more so me and my own behavior. It's taken me some time to walk through the complex feelings that all of this has left me. To deal with the anger, embarrassment, and sadness. I mean, I I still love Lewis. I always will. I mean, he was my big brother, but I can't let that love blind me to the people he hurt. When he introduced me to Candy, I didn't see her. I didn't even think about what all this meant to her. She was just an inconvenience that Lewis had dropped on my lap. When we had a drink at the bar, I didn't see the bartender batting away his advances. I thought about her manager, my friend, how he would feel if he found out, but not how she felt. When I stood firm at his wedding, I didn't see his wife. All I could think about was me and the uncomfortable feelings it brought up. And I'm ashamed of it all. You see, this is not an indictment of Lewis. This is a reckoning for me. I haven't spoke to Lewis since I threw that letter away. Not because of what he's done, but because of what I did or didn't do. And I know I, I can't go back. All I can do is go forward and apologize for my apathy and be better. I've always prided myself in trying to be a good guy, but the truth is it's a myth. The good guy is not a good guy. The good guy is a flawed human being who lives in this system that takes things from us. And in its place, it leaves this hole longing to be filled where people are collateral damage. This is not me saying I've got it all figured out. It's the opposite. This is my trying to figure it out. That story was true, but the names were changed to protect the innocent. After working on that, you know, I thought it'd be a great idea to have a conversation with one of my feminist friends about the story. But first, coming up, a thank you to our fairy godmother.
2: Many years ago, in the state of Florida, in a small hamlet called Jacksonville, A poet named Al Letson wanted to tell stories. I want to tell stories of the world, my country, my community, and my own, because I think that storytelling is a building block of humanity. And so he did. But no one would hear those stories unless he found a way to amplify them. In other words, he needed some money. Cash, De Niro, ends, Skrilla. But how? Until one day his dreams and prayers were answered by a lovely woman. Who,
1: who are you? Oh, sweet pea. I'm your fairy godmother.
2: <laughs> I have a fairy godmother?
0: Shush, 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 shush,
1: Now, don't worry. I'm here to make
0: it all better.
2: Her name was Dolores Weaver. And it turns out she wasn't just Al's fairy godmother, but the whole community's. Oh, man, me too? Everyone except you, Willie. Oh. Dolores Weaver's done amazing things in Jacksonville, and even started a fund to help nonprofits in Northeast Florida, the Dolores Bar Weaver Fund, which sponsors this show, for which Al, and by extension Willie, will be forever grateful. Wait, I thought you said not me. You're here, aren't you? The Dolores Bar Weaver Fund. From Al's Fairy Godmother.
1: And now to talk about that piece and everything in between is my friend who has absolutely no problem with checking me, Kimberly Foster. Hey, Kim, thanks for talking to me.
0: Of course.
1: Okay, so what was your initial take of the piece?
0: You know, I was really fascinated by a view of straight male relationships that I am really not privy to. I make lots of assumptions about how straight heterosexual men interact with each other and about the things that they say to each other. But it was really interesting to hear this first person narrative.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I would say, um, most of my male friends that I do not talk to each other the way, uh, that Lewis does. And also like the ones that I'm, that I'm really close to, uh, I think I would have had a much easier time, like kind of checking them on it. Um, but, but because Lewis and I's relationship goes so far back, um, I don't know. I just think that like, I, I, I think I'm so used, I was so used to making excuses for Lewis over the years. Like I would say to people that, um, Lewis is a great friend if you're a dude, ha, 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 ha. And I didn't think about like really what that meant beyond that.
0: Right. Cause it's like women are not people. <laughs> it's like...
1: Yeah. I mean like that, that, I mean now in the, in, in being able to look back, hopefully I've, um, grown up a lot and I understand that, uh, that not seeing people uh, is is basically taking away their humanity, right? But but I think, I, I I think if you had said it to me back then, I would have like reacted really badly and said, no, absolutely, women are people. Like I, I don't think that that was ever like the conscious process of it all. But obviously, that's the well,
0: sure, right? Like that's how institutional sexism works, right? Like we're all socialized to internalize these things and it comes out subconsciously so you know that's like a, a benevolent misogyny right so of course like you believed yourself to be the good guy in that situation but you were still an enabler
1: one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about uh, is that it's 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 pretty similar to racism and the fact that like I want white people to fight racism because I feel like the only way it's going to change is if white people actually go out and, and say change needs to happen. Um, but and, and so, like, I feel like men need to go out and, and do this kind of work as well if we want change to happen.
0: Yes, uh, I'm not sure what. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yes. Right. The people with the systemic power need to to take a proactive role in dismantling the systems that they benefit from. Yes.
1: What was your hesitation?
0: Um, because it seems pretty, <laughs> it seems um, pretty evident, right? Like, like I'm not sure, I'm not sure how many more times we have to, to talk about the role that, um, privileged people play in transforming our society, you know? I I feel at this point kind of fatigued <laughs> by these having these same sorts of conversations. And that's not to say that I'm not grateful for every single person every single day who comes to some sort of awakening and awareness, you know, but as somebody who has been subject to these these sorts of marginalizations, it just, it gets to be a little tiring, but I am glad that you're at this place and I'm glad that you're using your platforms to advocate this position. I am.
1: The name of this episode is The Good Guy Myth. Um, Is there such thing as a good guy? Do you think that Because we all live in this system that it's impossible to be totally, I don't know, uh, totally pure, I guess you could say.
0: I think that there are people who deeply desire to do good, who understand the need for social transformation. And I choose to focus my energy on those people. We are all socialized in you know, a system of what Bell Hooks, whom I love, calls imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. We can't avoid that. It's all around us. We've all internalized it to some extent. Um, but this world is only going to change if we take time to uh, think critically and engage in self-reflection and the ways that we have been um, affected and harmed by, you know, all of these sorts of oppressions that we have to navigate. So do I think that good guys exist? Sure. But I hope that people who believe themselves to be good guys are deeply invested in critical self-reflection every day. Because even if you think you're good, you can still be doing Bad. <laughs> it's immense, immense harm. And that's an issue.
1: Okay. And so uh, if men are listening to this and they want to do the work and they don't want to um, ask people to do the work for them, do you have any books and any recommendations of like where people can kind of start?
0: Of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so I love Bell Hooks' first book. It's called Feminism is for Everybody. It was published about 30, 40 years ago, but it still feels incredibly timely. For younger um, feminist theorists, I love a woman named Brittany Cooper. She just released a book called Eloquent Rage. Um, It's really, really interesting and very accessible. Um, Another favorite of mine is a book by Melissa Harris Perry called Sister Outsider. She's a political scientist. So she approaches her work from uh, a more academic analysis, but in these political times, I think it's really crucial and critical. And I also love Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. Uh, And finally, because I was not introduced to trans identity or how I had um, been perpetuating transphobia until recently, I love both of Janet Mock's books. Her first book is called Redefining Realness, and her second book is called Surpassing Certainty. And I know that there's lots of talk about gender identity and transness and trans experience right now. They are really, really great introductions to those topics.
1: Excellent. Kim, thank you so much for uh, A, listening to the piece, uh, and B, taking time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to educate me.
0: Of course, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Kimberly Foster is the founder of Four Harriet. Check out her site and her commentary at forharriet.com. She's brilliant. And peep those books. I'm actually reading Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, and I can co-sign with Kimberly. It's really good. And that, my friends, concludes this episode of Earthing. Next week, Willie will be back, and we are doing a story from one of my favorite authors. Shonda
3: and I are walking from Subway back to Millsaps College with two of her white friends. It's nighttime. We turn off of North State Street and walk halfway past the cemetery when the red corolla filled with brothers stops in front of us. All of the brothers have blue rags covering their noses and mouths. One of the brothers, a kid, at least two years younger than me, with the birdiest of bird chest, get out of the car clutching a shiny silver gun. He comes towards Shonda and me whether you buy it or not. What you gonna do? Go ahead, man. Take it
1: off. That's coming up next week. Check us out. Earthang is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The Good Guy Myth was produced by me and mixed by Willie Evans Jr., Brie Burge's Earthang Show Systematizer. She told me that means she gets the job done, and she does indeed. Special thanks to Stephanie Hudson, Rosa Cabrera, Rachel Goldman, and Sonia Renee Taylor. Additional music by Cellophane Sam, Augustus Bro in Gallery 6, Chris Sabriski's, and Scott Holmes. Earthang was funded in part by the Dolores Barr Weaver Fund. Special thanks to WJ CT in Jacksonville, Florida, and my other show, Reveal, from the Center for Investigative Reporting. You can find us on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Please, please subscribe. Write us a review. Reviews mean new ears, and we need new ears because Willie's are all chewed up. We're on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Erthing, E-R-R-T-H-A-N-G, and I'm at Al underscore Letson, and Willie is at Willie Ev. It's complicated. Just search it. You'll find it. And remember, my friends, you are a star set upon the night, and the universe needs you to shine. So shine, my friends. Shine.
2: Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone.
3: Hey, Al. This is Lewis's ex-wife. So I just wanted to say that hearing things that I never knew took place, you know, especially on my wedding day, that was, it was eye-opening for me and just let me know that, hey, you know, where I was then and where I'm at now is two different places and I'm doing wonderful. Um, I have lived the last. 10, almost 11 years doing things in the community and making people aware of their HIV status. And it makes it all worth it. Um, when I share my story and when I tell the world these things and for you to share your perspective of what happened on your end of the situation, just definitely, um, you know, it brought a lot of emotions, but, um, Appreciate you for doing that. All right. Thank you.
1: Radiotopia.
2: From P.